Tanakwe, and welcome to uh, Catherine Dyer, the climate correspondent for the Kaka. Catherine, lovely to see you again this week. Kia ora, Tefano. You've got some great background there in um, in Northland. We're in a in a sunny and um, uh, chirpy time of the year. The the cicadas are out, although not as many this year as in previous years. Apparently, um, the climate may be changing. Yeah, actually, one of the things I saw about cicadas was to do with their eight-year life or five-year life cycle or something like that. So in different years, you actually get different numbers of them because of you've got different species of them coming out. Oh, right. So, yeah, no. it's quite, cicadas are quite interesting like that. Yeah. Some years they're noisier than other years as well. Yeah, no, not quite so noisy this year. Um, yeah. I, I love a good noisy summer. Uh, that's that's my definition of a good summer is by the by the end of January – and in February, you know, you can barely hear yourself. It's great. Um, lovely to see you again. And and this week, uh, we've got a couple of uh, interesting papers that have come mm. up in the area of climate. Um, not so much in the physical uh, stuff, as we discussed last week. Um, maybe we should spend some some uh, a lot more time looking at the the um, social science of uh, climate as much as the climate itself, uh, because. We actually we have the solutions, we just can't seem to organise ourselves to to do it. Mm. Uh, um, but firstly, um, let's let's have a look at um, the one we're leading with in this week's uh, summary, uh, showing um, uh, what is is happening out there with academic papers that are the most uh, viewed in any one year and the role of climate skeptics in in creating that uh, hit parade, if you like. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so I had a look at a, a really interesting analysis that was done by Carbon and Carbon Brief. Um, and they were looking at um, the climate uh, papers that featured in the media the most. So they look at a, a measure called altmetric, and that looks at how often academic papers appear in online news articles and blogs and on social media. And each of those different areas are weighted differently. So like a tweet ha has lower weight than a, than a, um, appearing in a news article, for instance. Yep. Yeah. So then they, they give each paper a score and then you can rank them to see which got the most, you know, attention in, in general media. Um, and so in this analysis, they were looking at, um, different climate stories, uh, uh, specifically and in the top 10 and looked at the top 10 especially. And the number one paper, it, it was quite interesting. It was a, a paper about, changes in Antarctic ice shelf area from 2009 to 2019. And what that paper found is that there had been over that period, there had been an increase in the total amount of ice shelf area in the ah, Antarctic. Yeah. And <laughs> that paper, the reason it turns out that paper was number one is because it got picked up by climate deniers and they tweeted furiously about it. Um, I can't remember, something like, as many as 60,000 tweets or something um, of that paper or been retweeted. And that's what, so it was actually climate deniers who drove that paper into the number one position. And interestingly, amongst the other 10 papers that year, there were uh, four of them in total, I think, that were to do or were related to the cryosphere. So the cryosphere is um, to do with frozen water, basically. So it's, um, ice on rivers and lakes and snowpacks on mountains and glaciers and ice shelves. So that's all part of the cryosphere. 
And the three other papers in there were looking at things like um, erosion of the West Antarctic ice sheet um, and the the many problems that's going to produce. So we're looking at things like the collapse of the AMOC. So that's looking at the relationship with the, between the cryosphere and the hydrosphere um, and, and other things to do with um, glacier ice loss and how sensitive they are to temperature changes. So all the other papers in that area were, were sort of telling a slightly different story. Um, and even the people who wrote that number one paper were kind of going, well, we're not saying, you know, that, that, um, we're not saying that climate change isn't happening there. And in fact, in that paper, they kind of emphasised that where the ice shelves had grown was in East Antarctic and where we had the most concerns was losses around the West Antarctic ice shelf. Um, so they were really put out that it was being used in that way um, by climate deniers uh, to to say something that wasn't actually correct. Yeah, and we now that paper showed um, an increase in that particular ice shelf from 2009 to 2019. But of course, what we've found since then is um, uh, an awful lot of ice loss. Uh, yeah, exactly. That whole trend has completely reversed in the last couple of years, and we've had a, a really huge loss of um, ice in the Antarctic region, um, you know, in 2022 and 2023, to the extent that those researchers are worried that there's been some kind of you know, change in the in the normal situation, whether or not it's a tipping point, we have yet to see. But yeah, there are concerns about that. So yeah, things really changed in the years since then, and um, that that includes during the year in which that paper was published, and the deniers were retweeting it all over the place. So it was just interesting how much impact they had and what busy little bees they were, you yeah. know, tweeting that article around. That's the thing about Twitter and to an extent other social media is that they become confirmation bias machines. They effectively amplify things that reinforce your own pre-existing view of the world. And in fact, you use anything that supports your pre-existing bias to try to strengthen it. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram, uh, apart from the others, are a tool in which tribes get together and beat their chests and use these bits of flotsam and jetsam that they see in front of them to brandish in front of all of their um, friends as much as their enemies to say, mm -hmm. hey, I'm um, a hardcore uh uh, fan of this particular view, and here's the thing that proves it even more. Yeah. And, um, please help me distribute this around <laughs> to, yeah. to, in theory, change someone's mind. But in the end, what you're actually doing is is just um, creating two tribes shouting across the battlefield at each other, um, brandishing things, and not actually having a conversation or changing much at all. Yeah, and the other interesting, well, the thing that I found interesting about that result was the amount of power that they had to shoot that um, paper to the number one position in the altmetric score when everything else is telling us that the numbers of climate deniers are shrinking quite a bit over time and that as climate, um, the effects of climate change become harder and harder to, to negate or to deny, then, you know, they're, they're shifting to other tactics or they're not, you know, there's just fewer of them. People are changing their minds. So that sort of became something that I wanted to dig into a little bit as, you know, as in, you know, how few are these, have that, has that group become and why do they have so much power to, to do that? Um, yes, it's interesting that the, 
the 3.7%, uh, the estimate of the number of, or the percentage of New Zealanders who hold particularly hard climate sceptic views is a small number, but as you suggest, quite loud and active and um, uh, perhaps hard to to shift. Uh, although it's interesting, you cite uh, a, a new study from New Zealand, uh, from yep. Victoria University in this week's uh, wrap of climate news, uh, which looks at how climate change uh, beliefs uh, are distributed and also you know, whether there's much opportunity for people who are in one particular um, sets of beliefs or another for them to move from one to the next. Uh, could you talk a bit more about that paper? Yeah, so this paper, um, it was by three researchers, Tatiana Milfont, Ariana Athey and Chris Sibley out of Victoria, um, and they looked at climate change beliefs over time as well, so there was a bit of a longitudinal aspect to the study, um, and they found that the largest group um, – in New Zealand, which represented about 60.4% of all people, that group had the highest levels of climate change belief and concerns. And then that sort of went through a couple of couple of different groups. And then you got to the bottom group, which represents the climate skeptics or the climate deniers. And that group was quite small. It was only 3.7% of people. Um, and they also found that over time, people are consistently moving between those groups but towards higher levels of climate change belief and concern. So things are sort of going in the right direction and that group has become quite small. Um, but they also looked at who is in this small group and what are some of the um, what are some of their traits uh, that that make them um, you know have those kind of values and beliefs and those kind of denial attitude and that was quite interesting as well. Um, yeah, um, it's it is fascinating to see how things change, and I wonder whether this study, uh, particularly if it's part of a longitudinal study, can measure uh, you know how things change over time. It's um, fascinating, of course, right now because in the last year, uh, some of those three point seven percent climate skeptics, uh, which the demographics from the study show, tend to be older. Pākehā men uh, with religious backgrounds and a tendency towards ideological think thinking um, uh, have played a role in the election results. Obviously, uh, there's there's a good seven or eight percent of the population uh, who voted, for example, for uh, New Zealand First and ACT, uh, and a good two or three percentage points of that came from the. Um, of supporters of the French me? You've disappeared. got well below 5%, what you could, if you were being not very charitable, call the cooker um, uh, series of candidates, the ones who are anti-vax in particular, and and also climate sceptics, who um, at least some of them uh, made a decision in the election campaign to throw their weight of support behind uh, the New Zealand First Party to make sure that their vote counted and didn't get lost below the threshold and become a wasted vote. And as it turned out, um, that 1% or 2% was enough to push New Zealand First over the 5% threshold. And now we have uh, members of both the ACT and New Zealand First parties and previous comments from MPs now in Parliament from those parties, which you could describe as a climate sceptic. And Winston Peters at and David Seymour at various times have been 
uh, climate uh, skeptics, um, certainly uh, questioners, and um, not very friendly towards policies that might address climate change. Uh, we'll see whether that lasts in government. Um, and certainly uh, ACT had a policy of uh, looking to um, uh, remove the powers of the Climate Commission and also to renege on the Paris Agreement. So uh, small, uh, uh, quite influential, uh, quite well-resourced, have plenty of time and money to get out there and retweet like heck. <laughs> Yes, absolutely, so uh, that's been the case. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether those um, views change over time. So, um, and just uh, just finally, in uh, this week's uh, uh, wrap, um, uh, what are the things that um, we've heard this week from uh, Sir Jonathan Port, who has been uh, involved uh, in the New Zealand sphere over time, uh, quite high-profile uh, um, uh, advocate for sustainability policies and for quite strong policies to reduce emissions. Um, what did he say about uh, what happened out of COP28? Yeah, so he, he wrote a, a blog that was um, very critical, came out swinging about the results of COP28, um, that it was full of loopholes and weasel words, um, and also um, pointing at some of the, what he called the unlimited boosterism for all but useless technologies like carbon capture and storage. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the, the reasons that I brought that piece into the, in, into this week's, um, discussion is just to make the point that not all climate solutions are equal. So we know, um, you know, looking at, the new kind of climate denial, which is where deniers are moving into not so much just um, denying that climate change is happening, but uh, challenging a lot of the solutions, um, particularly energy systems and transitions. That's that's often a lot of focus where they're saying that they won't work or they'll be too expensive or they'll cause living standards to decline. Um, uh, you know, there's they've sort of moved into a space which I think is quite clever of them um, where there is um, um, where there's already um, quite a bit of uh, discussion about what the best solutions are and how to get to where we need to go um, and so you can cloak your denial quite well there and there's a real danger that in trying to combat that we end up in a position where we're sort of shutting down that legitimate debate as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so in that area, you know, there's a, just a lot more um, nuance and complexity, uh, you know, in that area. Um, and so I, I kind of brought in that, that piece from um, Jonathan Porritt's uh, blog just to kind of emphasise that point that not, not all solutions are equal. We don't all um, ascribe to the same. Um, and, in fact, there's a lot of fossil fuel money going into narrowing the debate and into supporting particular kinds of solutions that will safeguard their own profits. Um, and so we need to still be able to critique that stuff at the same time as we can combat what the denialists are doing. So it is definitely with all the misinformation and disinformation out there, it's getting a lot more complex. So these debates about the solutions uh, can make it difficult to have a, a, a clean um, discussion, but um there are dangers too in trying to narrow the scope of the debate by uh, 
pushing pushing out these uh, discussions about the success or otherwise of solutions. Could you talk about that narrowing of debate? Yeah, so we have, you know, a situation where there's a lot of um, fossil fuel or commercial interests who are busy trying to kind of narrow the discussion about the, about solutions to climate change. So, so they would rather than um, reducing fossil fuel use, I'd like to see more carbon capture and storage, for instance. And those aren't necessarily the best solutions. Sometimes they're the most expensive or they don't, don't work as well as promised. And so there's still a lot of debate going on about what are the best solutions to climate change. And so, you know, in that space, we have to be alert to kind of not having the, um, the problem solution space narrowed down too far. We need to be, to be able to be critical of, um, solutions that maybe aren't necessarily the best ones, but we also need to be able to combat some of this misinformation and disinformation that's coming in from climate deniers. So it has, it's just gotten a lot more, a lot more awkward. One of the things also that I wanted to, to point out is that, you know, it's often the case that a solution that you have that addresses climate change makes some other planetary boundary worse. So you might make um, biodiversity worse, you might harm biodiversity, or you might be putting more plastics pollution into the environment, so novel entities. You know, so you just have to have a much wider view of what it is that you're trying to achieve and what the best way is to get there. So, you know, it's really important to safeguard that that space uh, and not let it get you know, shut down by people who want everyone to glom on only to their solution and not any other, you know. So it's definitely got more, more, there's more mis and disinformation and it's more complex and there's a lot more nuance in that space. That's right. Um, so we've sort of moved on from, you know, debates about um, whether the climate is changing to now debates about uh, if we accept that, what we do about it and yep. and how do we avoid being just distracted and um, uh, pushed down into dead ends. Catherine, thank you very much for coming on to, uh, for your weekly wrap on climate news again. Uh, Catherine Dyer, the climate correspondent for the Kaka, um, Kaki Te Ano, and uh, we'll talk again next week. Thank you very much.